With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of Ookla speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com slash internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. The Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the midcourt strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe from way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with me, a very special guest, a fellow sports business classroom alum, James Trigger. James is a regular on the program, and thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me again, man. Now, uh, we're going to talk about a variety of subjects on this episode. First, we're going we're gonna to break down the, the big-time blockbuster trade between the Houston Rockets and the Oklahoma City Thunder, in which Russell Westbrook and Chris Paul have swapped teams. We're also going to uh, give our thoughts on Ben Simmons' recently signed uh, contract extension. And then, uh, towards the end of the episode, we're going to break down the, the first of my off-season series on all-decade topics, and we're going to break down our all-decade NBA teams. We're going to do an all-decade offensive team, an all-decade defensive team, and then more of like an all-NBA team for the decade. So, uh, James, first off, uh, speaking to this Russell Westbrook-Chris Paul deal, uh, the, the details, Russell Westbrook traded to the Houston Rockets for Chris Paul, first-round picks in 2024 and 2026. Those both are protected one through four. And then also uh, the the Thunder getting pick swaps in 2021 and 2025. Uh, The 2021 pick swap protected one through four, and that 2025 pick swap protected one through 20. But James, what were your initial thoughts hearing the news of that uh, that huge trade? Yeah, so initially, um, I mean, obviously after PG was traded, you have to figure that Westbrook was going to be on the move at some point, and all the talk was to the Heat. Um, and what kind of made me scratch my head about that was that, you know, the Thunder had just acquired uh, two Heat picks that uh, that the Clippers had owned. So, you know, if they're going to move Westbrook to the Heat, you would think that those picks would end up being a little bit worse in their favor. Uh, and then you started to hear a little bit more momentum about Houston. And you figure, you know, Daryl's just going to throw Houston's name out there for every big star, every big trade. 
Um, but I was shocked when it went down, really. Um, I, I think it's justified when people worry about the fit. Um, I think it's just Daryl being Daryl, though. He's going for upside. Uh, I think he senses that, you know, James is hitting 30, P.J. Tucker's up there in age, you know, Capella might not be the player that we think he is, Eric Gordon's getting a little bit older, and now with Golden State's reign seemingly done, um, it could be Houston's last year or two, uh, if that. So uh, I understand why Daryl did it, but uh, I definitely question the fit, and it worries me quite a bit. Yeah, it, it is a fascinating trade, in not only because, obviously, Westbrook and Paul are huge names in in the NBA, but also because both of them are really coming off, uh, arguably, their worst year they've had in, in quite some time. Westbrook, of course, with the horrible shooting for the majority of last season. Chris Paul, uh, you know, obviously he's had some, some nagging injury durability concerns the last couple of years, but he also seemed to maybe have lost a half a step in terms of his ability to to get past defenders. But I think the first question uh, that, that I'm interested in, in your thoughts on is, who do you think is the, the better player, or who would you project to be the better player for this upcoming season? Yeah, I'm going to try to strip away like the, the way I, I prefer players to play. I, I hate watching Russell Westbrook, and I hate the way he plays the game. But just the overall value that he brings to the court, I would probably lean Russ over Chris Paul, just because Paul's probably going to miss 25% of the season, uh, whether that be due to injury or just load management because he's up there in age. Um, you know, I think Westbrook's going to offer them more value in the regular season. And I think there's a lot of questions with Chris Paul in the postseason. I know he, he had a strong finish in that Golden State series, but um, yeah, I, I think I would lean Westbrook. Um, as much as as it pains me to say it, what about you? Yeah, I think it's it's certainly close, and and I I do tend to agree with you that Westbrook, just based on playing more minutes and more games, he's he's had uh, you know better durability over the years that he is going to provide better regular season value for this team. But when you talk about the postseason, you know Westbrook, three consecutive years he's been knocked out in the first round. Last year shot absolutely horribly. Uh, from the field, not only in the regular season, but especially in that Portland series as well. And you were talking earlier about the fit with him and James Harden, and I think the fit maybe in the regular season isn't as big of a deal, but when you get down to the playoffs, you know, when when teams can, can throw another guy into the paint when James Harden's got the basketball because they're fine, you know, coming off of Westbrook and letting him fire threes, that, that is a, a legitimate concern. Yeah, it's funny, you know, as soon as the trade went down, I saw a lot of people talking about, oh, I hate the fit, I hate the fit, and it reminded me um, immediately, you know, once Chris Paul, had, had, I guess he had opted in, and then the Clippers had, had traded him with the Rockets, um, immediately, you know, because James Harden was uh, the primary ball handler the year before Chris Paul went there, everyone's question was, is this going to work? You know, you have two air quotes, ball-dominant guys. Is this going to work? And I think in that regard, Chris Paul just brings so much more value in so many different areas uh, that doesn't involve him having the ball in his hands. He's a really good shooter. Um, Obviously, he's a great defensive player. And I think he brings a ton of value defensively because if you want to have an elite defense when James Harden's on the floor, you're going to have to switch. Uh, It helps to utilize him in the post, and he can't get through any screens. And Chris Paul is a great 
switch defender. He can hold up in the post. He's got great hands, and he can get around screens if you need him to. So, uh, and, I, and obviously his IQ is off the charts. He's a veteran. He's played in big games before. So he brought value to a ton of areas that I don't think Westbrook does at this point. Um, you know, the playoffs, more than anything, we're going to be able to see teams uh, exploit your weaknesses. Teams are going to dare Westbrook to shoot. I know, I know people say, you know, when Westbrook has the ball in his hands and he's going to the rim, he's difficult to stop. Well, you can scheme against that. And you can sag off of him and you can dare him to shoot. He's more turnover prone than Chris Paul. He's certainly a worse defensive player than Chris Paul. And um, they're both, they both seem to be tough personalities. Um, but I would venture to say that Chris Paul is a little bit more coachable just from what we've seen him and his interactions with his coaches over the years than uh, Russell Westbrook. And I personally am worried about uh, the, the personality clash between uh, potentially between Westbrook and Mike D'Antoni. Yeah, it, you know, the, there's a lot of people that are that are in the pro uh, Houston side of this uh, this trade and, and suggesting that you know, oh, you can you can you can take Harden off the ball more and, and Westbrook can create. That takes a little bit of load off of him. But you know, I look at that and 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 I get that these two guys are are much higher level players than like with Portland and, and the situation between when, when they brought in Evan Turner and they said, oh, you know, you can take the ball out of Lillard and McCollum's hand and give it to Evan Turner and they can play off the ball more. Well, if the guy you're giving the ball to is significantly worse on the ball than other options you have on the roster, and then when he doesn't have the ball, he's really ineffective, that's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I don't have the Westbrook ISO numbers off the top of my head here, but as, as much as people want to hate on the way that Houston plays offense, um, they've been an historically good team since Chris Paul got there. And, uh, you know, not traditionally D'Antoni's style, they've been very isolation heavy, whether that be James Harden operating out of isolation or Chris Paul. Um, before he was more of a pounded guy, he's going to run a ton of pick and roll. It's not going to be a ton of transition that we saw. Uh, you know, we didn't see them run a ton of transition with the Clippers. It was a lot more half-court offense. Um, and then he gets to Houston, and he completely transforms his game offensively. He becomes an awesome isolation player. Had one of the best offensive isolation seasons, his first season in Houston in NBA history. Completely transformed his game offensively. And when he doesn't have the ball, he is respected as a shooter. And he became a much better three-point shooter once he got there. Westbrook is an isolation player. Yes, he can drive to the rim, and yes, he can kick the ball out. He brings value in that area. But when Harden has the ball in his hands, what value is Westbrook bringing to you? Is he going to become a cutter like people have been talking about for what seems like the past five years? I'm going to lean no. So is he just going to stand there with his hands on his knees and they're going to treat it like five-on-four basketball? I don't know. I don't think Dan Tony's going to let that happen, but Westbrook's a tough player to coach, and uh, and, and Harden doesn't seem like he's going to change his game up anytime soon. So uh, we'll see. I'm really curious to see how their offense changes. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I'm very down on the move. If if you couldn't tell already, um, and you know the yeah the the big part for me is yeah taking the ball out of James Harden, who's one of the most efficient offensive players in the league, and putting it in the hands of Westbrook, who was one of the least efficient guys last year, is just uh, you know not a good recipe for having a good offense. I think the the one positive you could look at in terms of 
you know, maybe projecting this will work for Houston is the idea that Westbrook is this guy that, you know, is, is a relentless rim attacker and he, he creates open threes for his teammates. And in, in Oklahoma City, he just had nobody that could shoot, whereas this Houston roster is maybe a little bit better uh, set to, to utilize Westbrook's offensive strengths. Yeah, I think what ultimately might end up happening is uh, they're going to have Harden or Westbrook, one of those guys on the floor at all times. And, um, you know, when when they're both in the game, you're going to assume that Harden's going to have the line share the possessions and Westbrook's going to hurt your offense a little bit. But when Harden's out of the game, I think they're going to change their offense from being much more isolation heavy and they're going to let him run a little bit. Uh, and they're going to spread it out, always have Eric Gordon on the floor, probably have Austin Rivers on the floor too, three-guard lineups, um, and, and spread it out that way and, and run a much more spread-out system uh, and have him really really uh, operate that way. And, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see you know, how that changes when Harden's on the floor versus when Westbrook's on the floor and how their offense changes in that way. Yeah, and uh, you know Kevin O'Connor had a really interesting tweet. You know, obviously Paul had a down year last year, but but he mentioned you know he had a stat that essentially was with with uh, CP3 out there with Harden on the floor, his stats were as follows: fourteen point four points, seven assists, eleven point nine shots on fifty four percent true shooting per thirty six minutes. When uh, when James Harden was off the floor and it was just a, a CP3 led unit. Chris Paul averaged 22.5 points, 12.5 assists on over 17 shots and 58% true shooting. So this idea that Chris Paul is completely washed, I think, is uh, is a little bit silly. You know, you mentioned the, the defense that he still provides. He's still a great passer. He can still spot up and, and play off the ball and, and knock down shots. Uh, so, so, yeah, the value he brings, I think, is, is still pretty high uh, and... And, you know, the, the big difference, and I think one of the bets that Houston's making here, obviously, is that Westbrook is three and a half years younger than, than CP3. But, you know, Westbrook has a year longer on that contract. So, really, you can more look at it as like a two, two and a half year age gap. And I think Chris Paul's game is going to translate and, and age better than the likes of Westbrook, who, again, we, we've already talked about his, his struggles with the jump shot. And, you know, if you rely so much on that athleticism, if that goes away even a little bit, it's going to make you a significantly worse player. I completely agree with you on the, the Westbrook athleticism point. And, you know, I think it's interesting from Oklahoma City's perspective. We said once they traded Paul George, it was just a matter of when Westbrook uh, would be traded. But everyone viewed his contract as potentially it's probably the second worst uh, in the league behind John Wall. You can make an argument it was third worst in the league behind John Wall and Chris Paul. Both of those guys had terrible contracts. You didn't think that um, that Oklahoma City was going to be able to move Westbrook's contract without giving up an asset to get off of it. The fact that they were able to move it for Chris Paul, who some people could argue is even an upgrade over Westbrook, and you get the two picks out of it. I don't know how valuable those pick swaps are going to be, but you got two picks out of it, and uh, you have a year less on that deal. You know, Maybe after this season, buyout talks emerge, but I think he can certainly bring them a ton of value next year. And, uh, and he offers them the option of, you know, if they want to run a Chris Paul, Gallinari, Stephen Adams, a competent team out there next year, they can certainly do that. Or if they want to move to Miami or Minnesota um, for neutral or, or semi, you know, uh, 
negative value, they can do that too. Yeah, I mean, they they saved money in the long run with this trade. Obviously, I mentioned already that Westbrook has a has a four years left on his deal compared to Paul's three. Uh, you know, personally, I, I would say, you know, if you're not getting positive value or at least a small amount of positive value from trading him now, yeah, what's what's the what's the problem with holding on to him? And and who knows? There, I think there's a real possibility that for the first few months of this season, Chris Paul really plays extremely well, and a team maybe at the trade deadline that feels like they're they're one piece away uh, might might look at him and say, let's you know, even though the the last couple of years might be a problem, we're going to go for a win now move. Yeah, and um, th- this isn't a situation like you know Charlotte where Kemba's the only guy on their roster, and if they trade him, it's immediately we have to go into tank mode um, to to restart. Oklahoma City got such a ridiculous haul from the Paul George trade. They have the luxury of they don't have to tank this year. They just have so many assets and so many things moving forward that it's not like you have to just get off of Chris Paul just to get off of him and move everybody just to be terrible next year. Um, they have so many assets going forward that they have a ton of flexibility in that regard. Yeah, I think Sam Presti did an unbelievable job uh, getting so much for uh, his two stars, and he set up his his team and that franchise, uh, put them in a perfect position to uh, to succeed long term. Let's uh, let's move on now to the to the Ben Simmons extension. Philadelphia agreeing with uh, with the young Australian forward on a five year, one hundred and seventy million dollar max extension. What were your thoughts on this? Of course, Denver did this a few weeks ago with uh, with Jamal Murray. What first? What are your thoughts in terms of teams doing it this early uh, when when they're not getting much of a discount? And then, uh, you know, secondly, what do you think about that decision in, in regards to Ben Simmons? Um, yeah, it's it's a good PR move. Um, to free agents and players and agents uh, around the league, it shows that you know you take care of your guys. It, from Denver's perspective and from Philly's perspective, uh, they knew that they were going to be capped out uh, when they were going to have to extend, uh, or, or when you know Simmons and Murray were going to become restricted free agents. So they figured, why not just extend these guys right now? It's not like extending them uh, is going to uh, have us lose a ton of cap space in a year that we might need it. Uh, I do find it interesting, though, that you know the Murray extension news came out, and you didn't really hear a ton of um, a ton of criticism. And even I know it's a little bit different of a situation, but Porzingis got a five-year uh, max contract from the Mavericks, no questions asked, you know, no uh, team option, player option, anything straight five years or and, or injury exclusions. Yeah, yeah, and, and you didn't hear a ton of criticism about that deal either. Uh, but as soon as the Ben Simmons max extension gets announced, uh, you know everything just hits the fan, and you hear all this this type of criticism. You know, I, I think it's reached a point where he might become, uh, you know, he might be a little bit underrated in the public eye. Um, personally, I would prefer to have him over those two guys that I just mentioned, Jamal Murray and uh, and Chris Porzingis. I, I do think the criticism is is. It comes from people having seen how he can get exploited in the playoffs, and it's unfortunate because he has so many different areas of his game that he is very, very, very good at, but the one, his biggest deficiency, is the one that can be exploited the most. And we've seen that in the playoffs these past couple of years. So 
you can criticize him in that way, but you can also say, you know, Porzingis hasn't even made the playoffs yet. He hasn't even had the chance to be exploited in the playoffs yet. Jamal Murray's been in the playoffs once, and they got knocked out in the second round to who I thought was a worse team. So I think he's received a lot of unwarranted criticism. Uh, I think he's become underrated in the public eye. Um, and I think that it was a smart move for Philly to uh, to appease Rich Paul's camp and uh, and uh, and look good for other free agents going forward. Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the Porzingis situation is a little different because that wasn't uh, an extension. He was actually a restricted free agent this summer. But, but yes, it, it, this situation is the exact same. What Philly did with Simmons is the exact same as what Denver did with, with Murray. And, you know, I, I disagree with you a little bit in terms of I, I get what your point is as far as, you know, you, you, want, to, uh, you want to show potential free agents that, uh, you know, you're a you're a team that takes care of your players or whatever, but you also just mentioned that Denver and Philadelphia in both cases really don't have any money to spend in the next couple of years. They're basically, they're set as far as their rosters. And if I can get an extra year of, uh, of time to evaluate a player before I just throw the full boat at him, I'd prefer to do that. And it's hard for me to believe that a guy is going to pass down five years and $170 million next offseason. No, that's true. Uh, you know, I guess from from like a appeasing an agent perspective, you know, maybe next year or two years down the line, uh, Rich Paul might convince you know Marcus Morris or somebody like that to take a veterans minimum to join the team. You know, maybe I don't know how much weight it really holds in an agent's eyes. I don't think it can hurt you. I don't know how much it can help you necessarily. Um, but an interesting point, something that I remembered once the extension news came out was. Uh, shortly after Elton Brand had been announced as GM, uh, he was on Zach Lowe's podcast last year, and they were talking about some of the cap difficulties. Uh, you know, they were talking about renegotiating and extending Robert Covington, and then they got to Ben Simmons, and, uh, and Elton Brand immediately, this was before even last season, Elton Brand immediately said, oh yeah, he's a max guy. I mean, there's not much we can do there. He's a no doubt, you know, max extension when the time comes. And I, I did think it was interesting that at that time, Elton Brand was convinced you know, no questions asked. He's a max guy, so I think they've been planning this out for a while, and it was just a matter of time. Well, and that was, uh, you know, the the Timberwolves and, and their organization made some comments in regards to Andrew Wiggins that you know, even a year out, were saying, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna give him the max extension. He's got to grow into it, or whatever." And and that certainly uh, doesn't seem to be working out too well for Minnesota. Now, obviously, <laughs> I, I like Simmons a lot more than than uh, than Andrew Wiggins. Uh, but yeah, he's he's going to have to to work on his game, and and I think beyond just you know obviously you mentioned the fault of the you know not having a jumper, but just his ability to finish with his left hand better when he's driving in traffic. He, he's too right hand dominant, not only um, you know from the ten to fifteen foot range, but around the basket, he much prefers and is much more effective finishing with the right hand. If he's able to just get better finishing with the left and maybe adding a jump hook with the left hand to be a little bit less predictable, get into the post a little bit more and, and work on his footwork, he can become a, a significantly better player even without adding the jumper. Yeah, I think in a vacuum, you know, stripping stripping the team out, I think he's max player, I think he's max talent. It just depends on how the team is built around him. Um, I think as long as Embiid's there, it's always going to be a weird fit. Uh, Embiid operating so much out of the post and the Simmons not being able to shoot. Um, you know, Brett Brown is 
has his hands tied uh, at that point. But I think you have to do it and, and figure it out later on down the line. But I think he's a max talent, and uh, I, I'm sure their front office is happy that they got the deal done and they know he's locked up for a while. I'm certainly intrigued by uh, Philadelphia's uh, change in their roster construction this offseason. I think Elton Brand did a terrific job, uh, you know, reacting to the to Jimmy Butler leaving and uh, being able to get a couple of guys in, in Al Horford and also Josh Richardson. I think he did a fantastic job, and, and they're going to be a team that I'm, I'm really looking forward to watch next season. James, let's move on now to our, uh, our all-decade teams. We've both... Uh, prepped our teams and, and come up with our teams separately, so we're going to be surprised at least hopefully a couple of times at uh, each of our selections, but we're not only going to go through uh, the players that we think are going to make the all-decade offensive team, the all-decade defensive team, and the all-NBA decade team, but we're also going to pick a specific year that we think those players were best statistically and also just performance-wise throughout the regular season and the postseason. So uh, let's get started, James, with your all-decade offensive team. You want me to just go every single position? Let's let's just do uh, the guards, and then I'll tell my guards, and we'll go from there. Okay. Um, and the, the first guard spot, I have uh, Steph Curry in his 2016 MVP season. Um, and at the second guard spot, I have James Harden from the 2019 season, the season that just finished up. Yeah, we are in complete agreement so far. We'll see how much more of that than there is. Yeah. I'm afraid there's going to be some. All right, let's hear uh, Let's hear who you got on the forward line. Um, I have uh, LeBron James, 2013. Um, that was the year that he was one vote away from winning unanimous MVP. And, uh, and I have Kevin Durant, in 2014, um, as the second forward spot. Okay, so we have the same players, but a little bit of a discrepancy in terms of the years. So yes, I agree in terms of Durant, his his 2013-14 season, that was the year Russell Westbrook missed about half the season. Durant's numbers that year shot 63.5% true shooting on 33% usage, 32 points a game, 5.5 assists, and uh, led the Thunder to 59 wins that year. He was absolutely sensational. Of course, Durant throughout the entire decade was uh, was an incredible scoring machine. And uh, for LeBron, though, uh, this might come as a bit of a surprise. Again, focusing on just his offensive production, I actually picked the 2016-17 season with Cleveland. So his second to last year in Cleveland before going to L.A. That season, he shot 62% true shooting on 30% usage during the regular season. And then that uh, that postseason, 65% sh- true shooting on 31.6% usage. So, uh, you know, LeBron, of course, has, has gotten a lot worse defensively over the years, but I think in a lot of ways has, has continued to grow on the offensive end. Yeah, that was the one thing uh, I kind of went back and forth on, was that uh, some of those Cleveland teams, especially the year that you mentioned, the year that you picked for LeBron, you go back and you just watch them in the postseason, no team in the East stood a chance. And, and when they had surrounded LeBron with the shooters that they did, it was one of, one of the best offensive teams I'd ever seen. Um, I defaulted to 2013 because of just his ridiculous efficiency. I mean, I think his field goal percentage was uh, closer. It exceeded 60%. Um, just so, 
so efficient and had a little bit more athleticism, a little bit more burst back then. So uh, that's why I kind of leaned to 2013. Well, yeah, and uh, we're going to come back to that particular LeBron season as we get further and further into this. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's hear you who you have at center for your all-decade offensive team. Oh, boy. Um, this was tough. I had I had trouble with all of the center selections. This one I gave a lot of thought to. Ultimately, I uh, I had to choose between three guys, and uh, and I defaulted to Nikola Jokic from this past season. I like it. He was sensational. I I actually maybe uh, I I probably cheated a little bit. You might uh, dislike me for doing this, but I uh, because again we're we're talking offensive team. I just tried to put a team together that I think could actually work offensively. So I I ended up going with Dirk Nowitzki as my center. And uh, the 2010-11 version of Dirk Nowitzki, and uh, of course that was the year uh, the the Mavs ended up winning the uh, the championship. And uh, just a few stats from that postseason for Dirk in in the second round when the the Mavs swept the defending champion Los Angeles Lakers, he shot 57.4 percent from the field and 72.7 percent from downtown. And then uh, in the conference finals against Oklahoma City, which was a uh, which was a gentleman sweep in five. He averaged 32.2 points per game on 55.7% shooting from the field and on average made 11.8 free throws a game and on 12.2 free throw attempts. It's just unguardable, and it's crazy to think that somebody as mobile and as springy as Serge Ibaka couldn't guard him and was sending him to the line that much. Um, yeah, i got to say, you might... Uh, you can accuse me of recency bias, but when I was thinking about these teams yesterday, it was between Jokic, Anthony Davis in 2015, and uh, and I put a lot of thought into Carl Anthony Towns from this past year. I mean, I think he's so underrated offensively, and he is such a ridiculous offensive talent, um, but I defaulted to Jokic because of the passing um, and because... I can't remember in my lifetime another center we've seen uh, that you can run an offense through um, and and win mid fifties in games and, and get a top you know three seed in the West like they did. He's just such a unique talent, um, very good offensive rebounder, can score in the postseason, improving his three point game too. Um, so I wanted to be a little frisky there, and that's why I chose Jokic. No, yeah, Jokic was probably my number two pick. He was the guy I was contemplating the most. If I was going to go with, uh, you know, the the actual traditional center route, uh, whereas Dirk really didn't play hardly any center this season that uh, that I mentioned. But uh, yeah, his uh, his uh, ability, his versatility offensively, scoring in in a variety of ways, and that passing, as you mentioned, and yes, Carl Anthony Towns statistically, you know, has a case here. But I, I do generally tend to, to prefer the guys that actually uh, can can put up the big stats on on a winning uh, winning team. I agree. Now uh, let's let's move on to uh, the the all decade defensive team. Who do you have uh, in the backcourt? Um, so for my two guard spots, uh, I had Chris Paul, and I chose 2013. Although I struggled. Uh, choosing, you know, any year between 2011 and 2015, and at my other spot I had Tony Allen, uh, and it was the same case. You know, any year between 2011 and 2015, um, you could choose for those guys, and uh, I like their versatility. You know, before we started this, I had asked you, uh, you know, do, does it matter 
if when we're choosing guys from 2011 who might not hold up as well defensively with the way that the game is played today. And uh, I think both of those guys, their hands, their ability to get steals, uh, their ability to get around screens, and really their ability to just guard different players. I mean, uh, there's stretches where Chris Paul in the playoffs is guarding Kevin Durant. He's guarding Steph Curry. Uh, you know, he gets switched out of the post against bigger players he's able to hold up. And the same was, was the case with Tony Allen, you know, in those Memphis versus OKC series. He's the guy who's exclusively guarding a bigger player like Kevin Durant. And then, you know, in another series, he's guarding a player like Clay Thompson. Two completely different players, but uh, he's effective on both nonetheless. So those are the two guys I chose for my guards. We're in we're in total agreement yet again. I thought we were gonna have uh, we I thought we were gonna have a discrepancy with Tony Allen, but uh, I uh, I picked both of them. I picked uh, Chris Paul in 2013-14, and again both okay. of the you know Chris Paul was was an All NBA first team defender for for quite a few years there. I, I thought his advanced stats were just slightly better in that season, even though he played fewer games. Uh, and then for Tony Allen, I picked the 2014-15 season. Um, and and just to, to talk about uh, and and mention some statistics that that reference Tony Allen's consistency throughout the decade, he was 88th percent block percentage or higher in four of his eight seasons, 99th to 100th percentile and steal percentage in all eight seasons that he played uh, this decade, and then also in transition he was a 78th percentile or better in terms of transition points per possession. Uh, in in seven of his eight seasons that uh, that he played significant minutes, uh, so yeah, Tony Allen absolutely a a monster. And then I, I specifically picked that 2014-15 year because I remember that series against Golden State. You mentioned him defending a guy like Clay Thompson, where he just gave Clay Thompson and Steph Curry fits. And Memphis was actually up two one in that series just because they completely discombobulated the Warriors' offense, and that was in large part due to Tony Allen. Yeah, and then Steve Kerr made the Bogut guards Tony Allen change, and uh, and Golden State was able to come back. But no, he was he's an incredible defensive talent. Like, um, not the most athletic, not a freak athlete, but just got his hands on everything. You couldn't dribble by him. Um, and, and the the unique thing about him too is if you go back and you watch some of his footage, it's not like you know I I think that offensive players in the league give certain respect to guys that are guarding them that they just don't give to other people obviously but Tony Allen's not on their hip all the time when these guys are moving off the ball but as soon as they catch it he's there and they're afraid to just put the shot up they're afraid to put the shot up whenever he's guarding them just because they know he's going to get a hand on it he's going to make me uncomfortable he's going to bump me um so you know his his off-ball defense is on-ball defense you can't talk enough about it yeah and you know, I know we're we're just focusing on the decade that is the 29-10 season through the 2018-19 season, but even going back uh, last decade, the last couple of years in uh, in Boston, where he gave Kobe Bryant fits in in some of those Boston LA matchups. Yeah, he he was a terrific defender throughout the course of his career. Let's hear who you've got on the uh, the forward line on your all decade defensive team. Uh, so at the one forward spot, I have uh, 2016 Kawhi Leonard. Um, and at the other forward spot, I have I chose 2017 uh, Draymond Green. You know, I, I had difficulty choosing between 16 and 17. Uh, the same was true for Kawhi for 15 and 16. But you know, 
you don't really have to say much about Kawhi. He's one of the best perimeter defenders we've ever seen. And um, you know, I don't think uh, enough credit is given to Draymond Green. He, you can make an argument, is the best defensive player we've ever seen. Um, he should have more Defensive Player of the Year awards. And he is ultimately the reason that we talk about small ball now. He's the reason that the Golden State Warriors were able to be probably the best defense best overall team we've ever seen uh, because they could go small with him and because he could hold up, hold up at center and he can switch and he has one of the most ridiculous defensive IQs we've ever seen. Um, you know, Kawhi Leonard, you saw him in the finals guarding a guy like LeBron, making his life difficult, um, guarding all types of players. He can get through screens. He's strong as hell. He can hold up. Um, steals, deflections, he can just be everywhere, all over the court defensively. Uh, I thought those two guys were the most impactful defensive players uh, at the forward spot. Yep, I've got the same too. Uh, the, uh, the the years, I agreed with you on Kawhi, I went 2016 as well. With Draymond, I, I also went with the 2015-16 season when the, the Warriors won 73 games, even though again, Draymond won, the uh, you, you picked the year in which he won Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, but uh, I think even despite finishing second in, in 2016, he may have even been better that year. But yeah, both of those guys were great for for uh, most of the the mid 2010s, and uh, they um, they they have to go down as uh, as a couple of the greatest defenders in the history of the league. They changed the game. They changed the way the game's played. Um, you know, Kawhi. Obviously, he's made tremendous strides on offense, but before he did that, I mean, we're talking a 22-year-old, a 23-year-old who's winning Defensive Player of the Year as a forward. I mean, that's traditionally an award that's won by centers. You know, the forwards you've seen that have won the award are, you know, uh, Ron Artest, and uh, I don't think, did, did Scotty Pippen ever win the award? I don't think so, actually. I know Michael Jordan did in 1988, but I don't believe Scotty did. I'll, I'll check on that. I think Gary Payton won it, but you know those are a, a couple of the non-center players that win, and, and it doesn't happen often. Uh, and you see a guy like Kawhi win it, uh, and that speaks volumes about the way that he changes um, the way that his team plays defense. And just going back and watching some, some film. Uh, I stumbled upon an article from Zach Lowe. Uh, it was a midseason article from that 2015-2016 season, but it got to the point where Kawhi was so effective guarding the other team's best perimeter player um, that they would they would just take their best player, their best offensive perimeter player, and they would ultimately just like stick him in the corner, and Kawhi would be glued onto that guy, and it would turn into four on four basketball. There was a clip of Jimmy Butler. Kawhi was guarding Jimmy Butler, and the Bulls just stuck him in the corner. So it was like you're you're taking away Kawhi's help defense at that point, and that's what teams resorted to. They had no answers for him, so they said, we're going to take our best offensive player essentially out of the game uh, because Kawhi is causing so much havoc for us on that end. Yeah, I still remember the the uh, the clip of LeBron during, I, I believe it was the 20... 20- it was either the 2013 or 2014 finals where he's at the free throw line and, and Kawhi Leonard's checking into the game and you just uh, the camera zooms in on LeBron and you just see an exacerbated look on his face just like, gosh darn it, he's back in now. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing what, uh, what Kawhi is able to do on the end of the floor. Uh, so 
this position, uh, the the center spot on the all-decade defensive team, I think we might finally have a, a, a disagreement here. Who do you have? Yeah, this is the one that gave me the most trouble out of out of all of these. Um, I had to pick between two guys, and I uh, I don't feel great about this pick, but I chose twenty eighteen Rudy Gobert. Okay, so yes, we do have a, a disagreement, even though, yeah, Gobert was certainly in, in contention for me. I ended up going with uh, 2009-10 Dwight Howard. Yep. Um, so just looking at some of the stats for, for Dwight that season, he was uh, in the 94th percentile in points allowed per possession, 94th percentile in effective field goal percentage against, uh, 97th percentile in limiting shots at the rim, and then also 88th percentile in uh, in effective field goal percentage at the rim. You know, forced teams, although albeit it was in a different era where teams didn't shoot as many threes. Um, you know, he, he forced teams to take over half their shots in the mid range. Uh, he uh, he was really good on the on the defensive glass. Obviously, one of the league leaders in rebounds in a variety of years there. And then also, you know, 2.8 blocks per game during the regular season that year, and he even upped that to 3.5 blocks during their 14-game playoff run that season. Yeah, I mean, gosh. Right before we started this, I was thinking, do I want to change my Gobert pick to Dwight Howard? Um, I can I can understand the pick over Gobert because Dwight had a little bit more athleticism. Um, he was a little bit more mobile, obviously strong as hell, um, and had a, uh, a four defensive player of the year uh, victories. And that's something that we hadn't seen since, since like Ben Wallace. I mean, uh, he completely changed the way that the magic um, were able to operate. You know, you could play guys like JJ Redick, uh, Jameer Nelson, smaller, weaker perimeter defensive players because Dwight is just standing there under the rim. And uh, it was so effective that it was able to get them, you know, to the finals. So, um, I'm kind of jealous of that pick now that you mention it. Yeah, I mean that that's another thing that that uh, made him stand out to me was just the fact that he didn't have great defensive personnel around him on the roster. You know that uh, that team, as you mentioned, had JJ Redick, Jameer Nelson, uh, Richard Lewis, uh, Vince Carter, uh, an older Vince Carter uh, on that team. Just not a lot of guys that you would say, okay, these are this is a team that's going to be a top five defense in the league. It was really all Dwight Howard. But you know, I, I love your pick as well. You know, even as great of all those stats that I mentioned, Dwight had. You know, you compare them to Gobert and Gobert's statistics, and in all of those areas are are just as impressive. Yeah, I guess the argument that I could make in favor of Gobert is that um, you know Utah plays a drop coverage, and Orlando played a drop coverage, but. I think when you're still able to have a top five defense, um, when you're playing that kind of drop pick and roll coverage in today's game with so many threes that are being taken, you know, obviously you're going to need guards who can who can fight through and get over a screen. But um, you know, you're just you're feeding teams into taking mid range shots because nobody will score at the rim against him. No guards, no like you can't drive and score on him at the rim. And he's become such a great defensive rebounder that it's just a perfect defensive system for them to play. Um, he doesn't have to get out and move a lot. And that's, you know, frankly, his mobility is probably an issue. It's a deficiency for him. But he doesn't have to do it because he's so effective at the rim. Um, he's, he's a defensive force, and he's got length, and he's built up enough strength. He's a force on that end that I don't know if we've ever seen before 
uh, be as effective as he is just deterring shots at the rim. Yeah, no, that's a that's a totally fair point. It is it is a, it is a, a difficult challenge in in 2019 to to play that drop back coverage, and uh, with all the the three point shots being taken across the league, uh, yeah, I, uh, I I really uh, I really like that pick. Just uh, just to quickly mention another guy that I was considering throughout this process for the All Decade Defensive Team, and if I focused as as far as this team more on just consistency throughout the decade as opposed to one stellar season, I probably would have put Andre Iguodala in over a guy like Tony Allen. Yeah, no, uh, I, I definitely thought about Iguodala too. Um, you know, originally when I had made my team, uh, I had Kawhi at the two, and I was thinking about, do I put LeBron at the three? Now I don't think he's given, you know, he's had enough consistent, great defensive uh, seasons. And I wanted to put Iguodala there. Um, you know, when younger Iguodala and those 2014-2015 Golden State seasons he was sensational and then we didn't really see that necessarily in the, in the regular season um, as consistently as we had seen when he was younger but I mean you go back to the OKC versus Golden State when they came back from being down 3-1 just completely shut Kevin Durant down in those two games um, I know LeBron put up huge stats in the 2015 finals but Iguodala made his life a living hell and you know he forced him to shoot 35% from the field and um, he's got some of the best hands we've ever seen he's strong, he can move laterally like he, he can do everything on that end yeah, it's uh, yeah, it was it was a tough call I think a, another reason why I kind of went more towards Tony Allen is just the fact that you know, even uh, even as good as Iguodala was, he had guys like Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant as well as, as guys that could, that could uh, take over at times and, and stop guys, whereas Tony Allen, you know, yes, Mark Gasol was a defensive player of the year this season, the season I picked, uh, but but really he was the one guy as far as a wing that uh, that was out there on the Grizzlies roster that, that could shut guys and lock guys down. Uh, let's let's move on now to our uh, All Decade team. Unlike the uh, the All Decade offensive and defensive teams, I I went more towards uh, like consistency with uh, with with my picks on, on this team. I don't know if you did the same, James, but, uh, you know, um, I am curious to hear uh, who you've got in the backcourt for your all-decade team for the 2010s. Yeah, I, I went, uh, I did a little bit differently. I went just best season, best player at that position, best season. Gotcha. Um, and my two guard spots, I went Steph Curry, 2016 MVP season, and, uh, and I went James Harden this past season, 2019. Okay, so uh, again, yeah, I think James Harden certainly has a case, and, and I put him on my all-offensive team uh, for for this past year, but I went with Steph and Chris Paul, and uh, a big reason, again, why I went with Paul is just he's been great for the entire decade outside of maybe last year, uh, but uh, he's consistently made all de- NBA defensive teams. He's consistently been... A, uh, a really good instrumental part of, uh, of successful teams winning 50-plus games every single year. Uh, the, the season I ended up picking, it was, it's, it's really hard to pick the best overall Chris Paul season. You know, I, I think his best year in his career was back in, in 2008 with the Hornets. But uh, again, that's not the, the decade that we're talking about. So the, the season I picked was uh, the 2015-16 season, and that's the year in which Blake Griffin went down and played less than half the year. And uh, CP3 still kept the Clippers at a 56-win pace 
throughout the course of his 74 games played and uh, had the highest usage rate he had in the decade at 27% while maintaining you know, a decent true shooting percentage, averaging 10 assists a game, and also making first-team All-NBA defense. You, know, you can't go wrong with Chris Paul pick. Um, you know, obviously brings more defensive value than James Harden does, and you can make an argument about um, how transformative he is in the offensive end with his passing um, and, and how efficient he is. Uh, one of the best mid-range shooters we've ever seen. Obviously, he's a really efficient three-point shooter, and um, in his younger days, uh, he could he could finish at the rim really effectively too. Um, I kind of lean Harden because of just. Just how ridiculous of an offensive talent he is. And, uh, again, I know he catches a lot of paid for his game, but you go back the last five years, it's just consistently 28 points a game, uh, you know, eight assists, five rebounds. Um, you know, obviously, he has a huge usage rate, takes a lot of shots, but uh, with him being the focal point of their team and their offense, Houston's had a ton of regular season success. So it's, it's kind of why I leaned Harden, but now I'm curious to hear uh, you know we, we've gotten through all the guards on all three teams and uh, there's going to be one guy that maybe a lot of people are that are listening might complain has not been mentioned yet and that is Kobe Bryant uh, so you know obviously neither of us had him on on any of our teams but I'm curious to hear your thoughts in terms of uh, you know how serious of consideration did you have those latter years of uh, of Kobe on the Lakers when when discussing these teams? Not much, um, especially early in, in the decade, which, like you said, would have been the last few elite seasons of Kobe's career. Um, I, I thought he was a better player in the mid-2000s, uh, especially like that 36-point-per-game season. Um, and I thought, frankly, his defense was quite overrated uh, later on in his career, too. So, yeah, I would have had Harden above Kobe. I would have had... Chris Paul above Kobe, and I don't, I don't know. I probably would have had Dwayne Wade above Kobe too, but I would have had to think about that a little bit. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement. It's, uh, you know, you you look at those stats, and, and you, especially that 2009-10 season. You know, he was the best player on a championship team, but the the stats just don't jump off the page. They they look eerily reminiscent to like a a great Demar Derozan offensive season. And as you mentioned, the defense definitely had slipped, and even though he was he was still getting credited with all NBA defensive teams for a couple of years in the early 2010s. He, he wasn't nearly at that level. No, um, no, he wasn't. You know, he was pretty overrated defensively toward the end, made a lot of defensive teams, all NBA defensive teams based off reputation. And it's tough for me to, to kind of strip away, um, you know, those last three years of his career where he was, he was gifted all-star teams, and he was gifted all the notoriety that he was. It's hard for me to like strip away those years versus the very early 2010-2011, and uh, you know how his game had fallen off there. It was, was kind of hard for me to analyze that and put him on the team. So, uh, James, who do you have on the, the forward line for your all-decade team? Um, so my one forward spot was 2013 LeBron James. Uh, this was the year that he finished second in Defensive Player of the Year. Um, and this was what I had chosen um, as his most efficient, best offensive season. Um, this was the year that uh, the Heat won their uh, their championship against, uh, this would have been the San Antonio Spurs. Um, I thought he was unbelievable that season. Um, 
and and he still a little bit more athleticism than he does now. I know he was great in those Cleveland seasons, but um, this was the season that I likened for for LeBron the most. Yeah, so I uh, I went with the same season for LeBron as well. Of course, I mentioned when I had him on my offensive team, I went with the 2016-17 Cavs version. But but yes, you 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 have referenced his defensive play, his efficiency. The the toughest call on this was between for me was between the that 2012-13 Heat season versus the 2009-10 season with the Cavs. And you know, the speaking to some of the stats there, you know, on on that Cleveland team, he had a 60% true shooting on 33% usage versus Miami 64% true shooting on 30 usage. So, you know, because of the fact that he was playing with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, didn't uh, take as much of a load offensively and, and was a little bit more efficient for it. Uh, the reason I opted for the Heat season in the end was just due to his improved post play. He had uh, committed to that as a part of his offensive repertoire. And, and just a better understanding of how to play off the ball, how to cut. And uh, also, you know, he shot really well from three that season. Uh, so he was a, a pretty good off-ball threat. So uh, th- that was a tougher decision than I, than I thought it would have been. He was really good on those last couple of years in Cleveland, leading, the, leading you know, some, some average supporting cast to 60-plus wins. And then uh, my, my other forward I've got is uh, Kevin Durant. And uh, I went with the 2016-17 season, his first season in Golden State. Uh, I think uh, just the fact that he had lower usage, he was able to, to be a little bit better uh, and, and more consistent on the defensive end of the floor while still having just uh, crazy offensive numbers. Yeah, I, uh, I, I chose Durant in his 2014 MVP year. Um, I, I'd give it some thought about Golden State because you know, once he had gotten there, he had shown that he was a better playmaker than we had thought. Um, he had shown he's a better defensive player than we thought. Now, it's easier to do both of those things when you have better offensive and defensive players around you than, than he did in OKC, but um, I thought he showed a more well-rounded game in Golden State. Uh, I kind of lean to the 2014 season uh, with the stats that you had mentioned previously. I mean, just ridiculous usage. Had to carry the team on his back. Won 59 games in the West. Um and his scoring was just off the charts. His efficiency, like always, was off the charts. Yeah, the um, the the only guy I would have considered as well here, like if I was going more with with uh, your format uh, for you know just picking the best guy during the best season, uh, I would have probably picked Kawhi over Durant in in that same season, the twenty sixteen seventeen year, his final uh, full season with San Antonio. He was just so unbelievable on both ends of the floor. He had developed into a top 10 offensive guy while still being a top one or two defensive player in the league and not only doing it in the regular season, but also just playing brilliantly during the postseason as well. So he probably would have gotten my pick. But again, Durant, for his consistency throughout the decade, he's been a scoring machine constantly. Uh, so, So Durant got the nod there. Let's move on to center now. And uh, this was, again, a, a really tough call. And, you know, based on the fact that I'm, again, trying to go for more consistency, a guy I picked for uh, my all-defensive center uh, for the decade in, in, uh, in Dwight Howard is, is not really in contention because he hasn't been good for the, the second half of this decade. I ended up going with, uh, with Marc Gasol. Now, he's been a guy that, you know, has 
has not had any like truly spectacular seasons outside of that 2014-15 year where he won Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, but for the decade, you know, solid statistical numbers, 15.4 points per game, 7.7 rebounds, 3.6 assists, and 1.6 blocks per game. And again, pretty great defense throughout the decade. Yeah, um, you can't go wrong with Gasol. This was, this was a tough choice because... Um, you know, with the way that you were going off at consistency, you're, you're catching, you know, the very, very early part of the decade, a couple of Dwight Howard seasons. Um, and then, you know, Anthony Davis has been injury riddled. And, and now we're starting to catch the Jokic and Town seasons. But in terms of consistency, I think Gasol is probably the best pick. Yeah, so who did you, uh, who'd you end up going with? So because I was going with more of a like a one-season dominant performance, um, I went with 2015 Anthony Davis. Now, I know he played a ton of minutes at the four, um, but if I were coaching his team, I would have played him at the five. <laughs> Just a couple of stats um, to back up that season. Average 24, 10, uh, and three blocks a game. Led the league in blocks, made uh, all NBA first team. Uh, was a second team all defense player, uh, 31 PER, 60% true shooting at 21 years old, um, and was playing 36 minutes a game. Uh, led that team, although they got swept in the playoffs, led that team as a 21 year old to the playoffs, and um, and that was really his coming out party as a dominant player in the league. Yeah, he's a great pick, and and despite the fact that you know he he essentially. Was uh, he missed the first three seasons of the decade because he wasn't in the league yet, and then last year was kind of a lost season with all the trade stuff. Yeah, he still was in consideration just because of how how great he has been otherwise. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's that's a really interesting pick, and and uh, yeah, if I if I were again going with with your more format there and, and picking just based on brilliance over the course of a season, yeah, that uh, that 2015 year. Is is pretty incredible. Uh, so, so yeah. Uh, the the only other guy, as far as, as centers go, that I was considering as well is 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 Marcus Hall's brother, Pau Gasol. You know, he uh, for for the good first six or seven years of this decade probably put up better counting stats than Mark, but uh, wasn't quite as uh, as big of an impact on the defensive end. And uh, again, because he's uh, he's gotten older now and, and hasn't really been much of a factor the last couple of years, I gave Mark the edge. Was there any other uh, honorable mentions, guys, you were thinking about for for any of the positions on these teams? You know, I I did give some thought to uh, to Tim Duncan just because there there wasn't you know a ton of depth. I guess you could say for for the decade for that center spot, um, but you know that was. Didn't, didn't have a ton of uh, stats or uh, accolades to, to really back that pick up. Uh, for the overall team, I, I wanted to put Kawhi in there somewhere. Um, looking back on it, I probably should have found a way to put him in over James Harden. Um, but no, I, I feel pretty good about this. It's, it it kind of, when, when you start to research this and really look into it, you start to see how difficult it is to spell out you know, a player's best defensive season. Um, or best, it's a little bit easier for me to, to spell out a player's best offensive season, but best defensive season, um, you start going through the stats and, and you see how how difficult it is to parse through stats to see how effective a player really was defensively. Right, yeah, that is uh, that is a is a difficult challenge. 
And yeah, I uh, you know I'm a, I'm a I'm as big of a Tim Duncan fan as anybody. But you know, you talk about the offensive side of the floor. Uh, he he really was dominant uh, on the low block during the mid 2000s. But part of the reason why San Antonio went more to a to a pick and roll system with Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili in the early portions of the decade was because Duncan had uh, had gotten worse as, as far as being that number one option. So yeah, he uh, he wasn't really in consideration offensively. Defensively, I I did give him a lot of consideration because you know despite the fact that he's not going to have uh, the the crazy statistical profile. He's a guy that was so intelligent out there, always was in the right place. Uh, you know, was never fooled by decoy actions out there. So yeah, he was he was in consideration for me as well. I, I like that uh, that you gave Tim Duncan an, a a shout out here. But uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was it was really fun exercise to do. I was also trying my best to 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 make it so that I didn't have multiple guys on multiple teams, but there just weren't enough of those crazy outlier seasons that, that could get guys in there that might be a little bit of a surprise. Yeah, um, and, and going through, especially on the overall team, you just see how uh, you know ridiculously loaded the talent has been this decade. Um, you, know, you, you start to go through the stats and you see how great Damian Lillard has been, how consistent he's been. Um, Kyrie's had some wonderful seasons, especially with with his playoff success. And uh, you know, I I wouldn't entertain it, but you could probably make an argument that you know, Carmelo Anthony's 2013 season um, and leading the Knicks to the playoffs should probably have you give some thought about you know considering him for a team. But uh, no, we've been uh, we've been pretty fortunate with with the talent and the entertainment we've been able to see so far this decade. Well, James, this was uh, this was a lot of fun going over uh, off-season news as well as doing my first uh, first off-season decade list. Thanks so much for uh, for taking the time and coming on. Thanks for having me, man. This was a blast. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can uh, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes. If you can leave a, uh, a rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Uh, the show is also now on Spotify. Uh, if you can uh, give the show a follow, again, a rating on there, uh, that uh, that really helps a lot. If uh, if you've got any uh, questions or comments or uh, or ideas for uh, for future episodes, uh, you can contact me. Uh, on Twitter, at Garrett Bouguet, and also uh, my email is g-bouguet at onu.edu. So uh, feel free to, uh, to uh, give me any of your uh, ideas. I, I love to hear from, uh, from the people listening to the program, and uh, enjoy the next week of the NBA calendar, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Leftovers or... The DMV, number 97, or house cleaning, or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. 
Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas. Visit cox.com slash internet for details.